Amen. Thank you, Gail. Singing for us. Appreciate that and the timely message. And we didn't even coordinate what we were doing as far as choosing songs and love how the Holy Spirit always weaves those things together. He weaves themes for us together and highlights things for us. Uh, the faithfulness of God, um, the, 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 the certainty and the assurance that we have um, that we've already sung about and now we've heard from Gail singing about and now we're going to hear even more about uh, in the Word. If you'll turn to Philippians chapter 1, Philippians 1, and while you're doing that, I'll just say a couple more things. Um, of course, earlier we mentioned about being here because of the renovations, but the other thing that's happening at the same time is that our pastor is on a sabbatical leave uh, for the month of July. And so most of you probably were aware of that, um, but if not, uh, Pastor Scott has been uh, granted uh, by the church a sabbatical time, uh, so he and his family are traveling and will be um, all over the place and doing different things during this month of, of rest and refreshment. And that's a great thing for the church to offer to their pastor. I know that he is grateful uh, for it, and I know that he has expressed that many times, but let me also add my word uh, of gratitude to you, um, uh, and not just because I think I'm looking forward to when I get mine, but because, <laughs> uh, but because I know the benefit of, of serving on staff with a pastor who has that opportunity to go and to rest and to have some time away uh, and to come back renewed uh, and to fight against uh, the ever, uh, you know, the plague of ministry, which is burning out um, and being overwhelmed. And so I'm just thankful um, for, for him to have the opportunity for you to give that to him. Uh, and so we are blessed, uh, all of us on the staff and everybody here is blessed uh, to be a part of this uh, family, uh, this fellowship uh, tabernacle. Uh, so thank you for that. Um, as we look at Philippians this morning, I realize uh, that we're looking forward to July 4th holiday, and I was thinking about uh, what we might look at in terms of Scripture. There are, of course, passages about how, to, how are Christians supposed to relate to the government, and I think those things, as, as Pastor Scott has said before, he doesn't necessarily preach about mothers because it's Mother's Day or about fathers because it's Father's Day, and I didn't want to necessarily do that same thing and just because it's July 4th preach about, you know, citizenship and how we relate to the government and all those things. But I was drawn to this passage in Philippians because it doesn't speak about our relationship to the civic government, but it does use language. Paul uses language that relates to our understanding of citizenship as he talks about our citizenship in not our nation, but in the kingdom of heaven. And so look with me at Philippians chapter 1, uh, beginning in 27 through 30. He says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that I saw, that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. In uh, the last few years, there have been some news stories, maybe these are a little bit dated now, 
but big news is always made when athletes sign major endorsement deals. And in recent history, we have not only seen the beginning of those deals, but the ending of those deals. Bicyclist Lance Armstrong lost an estimated $39 million after it was revealed that he had used performance-enhancing drugs. Golfer Tiger Woods lost an estimated $22 million after a public divorce that stemmed from multiple affairs and sexual addiction. Football player Ray Rice lost $1.6 million a year in endorsements after a video surfaced of him striking his fiancée in an elevator. All these athletes who had been given all this money to represent brands and to represent companies had it all taken away because something they did, the companies decided that it was no longer good business for their names and their brands to be represented by these individuals. They basically told them, you don't speak for us anymore. You don't represent our image. You don't represent our values. We don't want you taking our name and representing us to the world. And I think that this passage, Paul is saying something similar to that. He's telling the church, as the church, you have the responsibility to live in a way that rightly represents the gospel and the God and the Christ that has saved you. When he uses the phrase in the first verse there, the manner of life, that's an alternate translation, uh, could be to live as citizens worthy. And so these, these, this idea, this semantic idea of that phrase, manner of life, carries with it this idea of citizenship. And even in the Greek language, the, they would use that same terminology talking about civic citizenship. And so he's, he's telling them, just as a citizen of your nation, you represent that nation and you carry that name and you carry those cultural values with you, also as a citizen of the kingdom, as a believer, as someone who's been saved by the gospel, by Christ, you represent Christ and you're supposed to live in a way that is worthy of that gospel. And so when he says worthy, it doesn't necessarily mean deserving. Because we understand that we can't earn the gospel. We can't ever deserve the grace of the gospel. What he means is that you're worthy and that you are accurately and fully representing the gospel and the God of the gospel. So this, this opening instruction here to live your manner of, let your manner of life be worthy. So live as a citizen who fully represents and accurately represents God and the gospel that has saved you and the kingdom that you have been saved into. As a believer, you have that responsibility. And so when he makes that statement, then the rest of the passage he goes through and he tells us how. He tells us how. And so I have four here marks of a gospel worthy church. He tells them to be united in their convictions. He tells them to be courageous in persecution. He tells them to be certain of their salvation. And he tells them to be patient in their suffering. So first in verse 27, he says, the gospel worthy church is united by shared convictions. If we are going to stand together, then we have to be together on where we stand. And convictions are not simply the beliefs that we hold. Convictions are the beliefs that hold on to us. 
convictions are the things that we fight for. Convictions are the things that we would be willing to die for. And so when he talks about standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, he's not talking about unity in terms of agreeing on various things. Unity and conviction is more than just agreeing that we all like the same kind of music or agreeing that we all like the same uh, kind of preaching style or agreeing that we all like the same color of carpet, which thankfully we did all agree. Um, But unity in conviction is so much more than just agreeing with each other about trivial things. The convictions that we share are the things that we should lock arms with each other, stand side by side, strive side by side, and die side by side should we be called to do that. This difference between, between peripheral issues and uh, just, just preferences and convictions, I think, has been well illustrated thinking about the ocean. And if you go out into the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, where the depth is like two miles down to the bottom, if, if, you, if you are up on the surface of the ocean and there's a storm and the waves are crashing and there's rain and thunder and lightning, once you start making that descent in a submarine down, pretty soon it's going to be quiet, especially once you get all the way to the bottom. It doesn't matter what is happening up on the surface. It is calm and it is still and it is the same all the time down in those depths. And so if we get away from any kind of preferential things, any kind of non-essential things, that I might have a different idea about how to do something than you do, or I might have a different preference about this thing or that thing than you do. If we get away from that and get down into the depths of conviction, talking about core fundamental doctrines, the things that define the gospel, the things that define who God is, who Christ is, and what Christ has done, if we get together down there where the storms are not raging, where it's calm and still, and we build our unity on these core convictions then when we rise back up to the surface together, we will be together no matter what other things are blowing against us and maybe be trying to blow us apart. We have to be united in our convictions, not just in preferences, not just agreeing about trivial things. Striving side by side with one mind and with one spirit. So the second thing is that unity is unity and conviction is, is not just agreeing, uh, and it's not just uh, passive individualism. So building unity is not about just giving up the fight and just being myself, and I'm just going to kind of exist here in this church with other believers, and we all sort of do our own thing, uh, and we don't, we don't really fight about things, but we sort of just stick to our own business uh, and mind our own business and we don't fight, and therefore we're unified. Not so. Because of the phrase, striving side by side. Striving side by side. It's kind of like the difference between bumper cars and a train. We can all be in the same arena in bumper cars, all going our own direction and bumping into each other, or we can all be on a train pulled by the same engine going in the same 
direction. Unity in conviction means active cooperation. Active cooperation. We all have to be invested. We all have to be involved. We all have to be uh, committed and faithful to each other and to these convictions. So these convictions are what unite us. This is one of the reasons why, and as the worship pastor I can speak to this, we don't have separate worship services that are defined by musical preferences. Because the things that unite us are so much bigger and so much stronger than the little things that would separate us. And so we are united. What does it say about the gospel if we are, allow ourselves to be separated and divided on things that are not essential to the gospel? What does it say about the gospel when we tell people this can reconcile you to God if our musical tastes can't be reconciled in the gospel? What does it say about the gospel when we tell people you can be reconciled to God, you can be saved from the wrath of God if Petty arguments can separate us to people who profess to believe in these same gospel convictions. We have to learn how to hold on to our preferences and the non-essential things loosely so that we can grab on to the convictions more tightly and let those convictions bind us together. And then once we're committed to those convictions, I think we can start navigating through the waters of how do we make decisions about things that we have different opinions on but that aren't essential, and we can do it with grace, we can do it with deference, and we can do it with joy. But we've got to start with building our unity on the convictions. And the last thing I'll say about unity is that I don't believe that unity is something that we can sort of strive for for its own sake. So unity is not something, we're going to be more unified. What, What do you do? If I tell you, be more, be more united as a church, what, what would you do next? You probably don't know. I don't even know what you would do next because it's not something that we can like grab onto and, and do. You can't do unity. Unity is a byproduct of other things. Unity is the byproduct of us knowing what these convictions are, of us knowing where we stand and knowing what we believe and making those things clear and committing ourselves to those things. And then we are united as a byproduct of sharing the same convictions. And so we've got to separate out what the convictions are from what not con- non-convictions are, what, what are essential versus non-essential. We have to articulate those things, ag- uh, come to agreement on uh, committing to those things, and then we will build unity uh, as a byproduct of conviction. So the gospel-worthy church is united by shared convictions. The gospel-worthy church is also courageous in the face of persecution. It's a few things about courage. Courage means that we stay the course, that we respond instead of just reacting. The context of this short passage that we're looking at today comes after the rest of chapter 1. And what Paul's describing in in chapter 1, starting in verse 12, he's talking about his own experience and his own challenge. He's talking about his own trial. And what he's talking about is that he was attacked and imprisoned by the secular authorities for preaching the gospel And then he was also attacked from within the church by people who were telling him that the way you're going about this is not helpful. 
So he was preaching the gospel, gets arrested, and then people from inside the church are telling him, well, the fact that you got arrested, that you're being so antagonistic toward everybody, is not helping. You're just trying to make a name for yourself. You're just trying to, to, to rouse people up into a frenzy rather than actually you know, preach the gospel. And what did Paul do? Instead of reacting angrily or instead of rebuking those people, he just said, so what? In verse 18, he says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. He wasn't consumed with what they thought about him. He wasn't consumed with, woe is me because of my persecution. He had courage, and therefore he responded instead of just reacted. He responded by keeping the gospel the center of everything he was doing, just like it always had been. Just like it was before he was arrested, just like it was before he was attacked, the gospel was still the most important thing. The gospel was still his core purpose and his sole meaning for his life was to proclaim the gospel. And so he said, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what they say. It doesn't matter what happens to me. God is preserving me and taking me where I need to preach the gospel. And, and then later on in the, in the chapter, going on from there, he says, I will rejoice for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. He even says, uh, either, either for to me is to live as Christ and to die as gain. So he says, it doesn't even matter if I live and preach the gospel in this prison, if I live and get released and preach the gospel to the world again, if I die here, it doesn't matter because all this is working out for my deliverance and the gospel will be proclaimed and all of it will be for God's glory. That is the courage that the gospel gives. But also I think courage means that we have to know what real persecution is and isn't. And so when we're looking at someone like Paul in this particular context, being attacked and being beaten and imprisoned for the sake of the gospel, that's real persecution. When we look around the world today, we see in places in the Middle East, in Southeast Asia, where people are genuinely being persecuted for being Christians. They're being killed. They're being attacked. Their buildings and their homes are being destroyed because they are Christians. I think that we, as the American church, throw around the word persecution too loosely sometimes. You might, might not remember, but a, a couple of year, Christmases ago, it made this huge nonsense story about Starbucks cups being read and somehow that was an attack on Christmas, and that was an attack on Christianity, and people started calling it persecution. Folks, that's not persecution. That's an inconvenience at best, or nothing. At, 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 at best, it's nothing. At worst, it's an inconvenience. I would even dare to posit to you today that having the Ten Commandments removed from a civic building is not persecution. All of these little things that we like to get ourselves worked up about in our culture, about, about attacks on Christians and attacks on Christianity, we haven't even come close to understanding what it means to suffer for the sake of the gospel. We haven't even approached what it means to have livelihoods taken away. We're getting there. Slowly, we're getting there with, with some, of the, some of the discrimination that's happening against businesses that refuse to serve same-sex couples, 
I think that's starting to approach the level of persecution because people's lives are being taken away, taken away people's, people's livelihoods are being taken away. But on the whole, we haven't even come close to understanding what it means to suffer for the sake of the gospel, to suffer, to be arrested, to be killed, because simply we preach the gospel and we proclaim it uh, without uh, hesitation. So courage means that we stay the course. It means that we understand what real persecution is because we have to define what that courage means in, face of, in the face of real persecution. And finally, the, the necessity of courage, so the necessity of this courage in the face of persecution means that there is no such thing as a culturally acceptable Christianity. If there was ever a culture on the face of the earth in which Christianity were normal and acceptable, then this whole instruction would be invalid. This whole direction from, from Paul that is etern- the eternal word of God speaking to us, this charge to not be frightened in anything by your opponents. And then all of the other instructions throughout the New Testament about warnings against worldliness and warnings against against becoming like the world and, the, and how, and how the, the spirit of the world is opposed to the spirit of God. If there was ever such a thing as a culture and a society on the planet Earth in which Christianity was, was acceptable, all of those things would be null and void. And so I'm positing to you that those warnings against worldliness and this, and this instruction for courage in the face of persecution against the world, those things did not end in 1776, America is not the promised land where all of a sudden now the world is not the world anymore and the church can exist with the world and not be apart from the world. We have to understand, I think uh, Charles Spurgeon said, in, in the 1800s, he said this. I believe that the church has so little influence over the world because the world has so much influence over the church. And that's something he said in the 19th century. And if you think about how far we have come since then and how much of worldly values and worldly culture infiltrates and influences our lives as believers and the life of the church as an institution... We have to recommit ourselves to understanding that biblical Christianity, the gospel that the Bible proclaims, is totally at odds with the values of the world. It's totally at odds with the culture that we live in. We have to live and feel more like aliens who don't belong here. We have to live and feel more like people who need courage because we are uncomfortable in the culture and we're uncomfortable living out the values of the kingdom in a world and a culture that opposes them on every front. We need to feel more like we need that courage. So where does the courage come from? We can be courageous because we are certain of our salvation. In verse 28, he says that this courage is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. One of the times, not the time, but one of the times uh, that I got pulled over for speeding, um, because there have been more than one, uh, I was on the interstate 
it was at night, I guess. Yeah, it was dark. And I, I'm driving on the interstate, and all of a sudden I see the blue lights, a pullover. And I'm, you immediately start thinking to yourself, like, what could I possibly say to get out of this, right? Like, what can I, can I make an excuse? Can I, like, sweet talk this? Normally I don't try that. I'm not very good at it, but I'm, I'm already, the wheels are turning, right? I never saw the sign. That's what I'm thinking. I didn't see the sign, all right? So the, so the, the officer gets here to the window, and he asks me, you know why I pulled you over? Um, I, think I, I think I usually just say no just to make them tell me so I don't incriminate myself. Uh, but, <laughs> but he says, you're, you know, the limit here is whatever, and you're doing this. And, and I, I look up, right at that moment while he's standing there, I'm about to say I never saw the sign. And I had literally stopped right in front of a speed limit sign. Like my headlights were shining off of it. It was, br- it was bright as the moon. I mean, it was lit up. 55 or whatever it was. And I said, I, that's the first sign I've seen. <laughs> and then he sort of, you know, like laughs and shakes his head. And then I get a ticket, of course. But it, there was a clear sign. And I had no excuse. But God, God gives us a clear sign. He says that your courage in the face of this persecution is a clear sign. It's a clear sign to them of their destruction. It's a clear sign to you of your salvation. See, God gives us great assurance, but it's not always in the ways that we expect it to be. The clear sign is not the absence of persecution. The clear sign of God's provision, of God's salvation, is not the absence of the persecution. It's the presence of courage in the face of the persecution. Because the courage can only come from one place. It can only come from spirit-empowered gospel living. It can only come from the power of the gospel that's transformed us uh, into spirit-indwelled people uh, living out that gospel and being, being nailed down to those convictions that when the, when the opposition comes, we have no choice uh, and we have no hesitation but to respond in courage. And in that sense, that courage then becomes our assurance. Certainty and courage are a form of proclamation. It's a form of preaching the gospel. I think that's, uh, that kind of a little bit harkens back to what he was talking about when he was being criticized for preaching the gospel in a way that got him imprisoned. He's saying, even, the, even in my imprisonment, my persecution and then my courage in the face of that is a form of proclamation. These people will see my courage in the face of persecution and that will be a testimony to them. It'll be a testimony of them to their destruction. It'll be a testimony to them of my salvation and hopefully it'll be a testimony to them that will turn them from their destruction to salvation. So the certainty and this courage are a form of proclamation uh, to proclaim the gospel. Finally, our, our courage and our hope are not in ourselves but they are from God. It's not up to us to keep our salvation any more than it's up to us to earn our salvation in the first place. We can't do any of that. We can't earn our salvation. We can't keep it. We can't preserve ourselves. God's sovereignty is the fuel for our courage and our rest because he has us, because he is holding us, because he is keeping us, we can rest and we can be courageous in the face of opposition because we know that his will is does not change, and that his will cannot be thwarted. As I was going through this, I was reminded of a hymn. It's not in our hymnal, and I don't know if any of us have ever sang it before, uh, but I'm familiar with it. And it was uh, by William Cooper in 1774. And he writes this, God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform 
He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. We don't always understand how God is moving and how he's working. It doesn't make sense to us. It's not the same way we would do something. That's because he's God and we're us. And he's eternally wise and eternally good. And he moves in a mysterious way. But like it says, the clouds that you fear, the clouds that you dread are big with mercy and soon will break with blessings on you. Finally, we're to be patient in suffering. The gospel-worthy church is patient in suffering. Verses 29 and 30. It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. One thing to make clear here is that suffering for convictions and suffering for the gospel is not the same thing as suffering as a consequence of your own sin. So I can't go and sin. I can't go and speed down the highway and get a ticket and then, oh, I'm suffering, being persecuted. Suffering for conviction is not the same thing as suffering for the consequence of sin. We suffer for the consequences of our sin as a reminder of our sinfulness and to, to bring us back to the Lord and back to repentance. But in righteous suffering, the suffering that comes to us not by any action of our own, but just because of the circumstances of life, and especially because of opposition to the gospel, that righteous suffering is a gift from God. It's not just allowed by God. It says it's granted by God that you should suffer for the sake of Christ. It's not something that God is just bearing with and allowing to happen so that we can get through it. It says it's being granted to you. It's being given to you for the sake of proving through this courage and through this persecution that the gospel is true and as a way of joining ourselves with Christ that we would suffer in the same way that he suffered and be joined and united with him uh, as he was opposed by the world, so will we be. As he was uh, suffered unjustly, so will we. And then Paul likens it to his own conflict. He says that you, you would be engaged in the same conflict that you saw I have. It's like, so the same kind of suffering that I'm enduring is also granted to you. The same kind of conflict that I'm enduring is also going to be granted to you. But what you should do is not despise it, uh, and not curse God for it, but to be patient in it, knowing that your salvation is certain, knowing that, as he said previously, to live as Christ and to die as gain, and whatever would happen, 
My hope is secure. My life is held in God's hand. And I will not fear. I will be courageous. I will be patient in my suffering. So just to go back, how do we live as people who are worthy of the gospel? How do we live as a church that's worthy of the gospel? Number one, we seek unity in our convictions. We don't seek to build unity around preferences or affinities. We seek unity around our convictions. We seek to declare and to articulate what it is we believe, why we believe it, and we build our unity there. And then we have the grace and we have the the maturity to then navigate our differences and preference and affinities uh, in a godly way and, and staying united in those convictions that are core. Number two, we understand what real persecution is and we are prepared to pay the price of courage in the face of real persecution. Number three, we can rest in the certainty of our salvation, knowing that it's not up to us to keep it. It's not up to us to earn it. It's simply up to us to trust the Lord and to rest that that He is uh, assuring us of our salvation and that all the things that are happening to us are underneath His control and that we can be, be, be certain and clear and we can rest uh, in our salvation. And number four, we can be patient in suffering for the sake of the gospel. All of these things, unity, persecution, courage, resting in certainty and patience, all of those things mark a citizen of the gospel kingdom. They, they proclaim to the world the testimony that we believe in the God who changes lives. He has changed our lives. He has transformed us from death to life, and we live this way, not in our own strength, but we live this way in the power of the God we serve to proclaim that power to the world and to the lost. This morning, we're going to have a time of response. This is for everybody to respond. We're going to sing a hymn, and everybody will respond by singing, but if you uh, would respond a different way, if you have not ever trusted in Christ, if you don't have this courage you don't have this certainty this rest Uh, today is the day of salvation the bible says repent of your sin confess that jesus is lord and be saved and so you're welcome and you're invited to come forward pastor aaron i'm going to lead the singing so pastor aaron's going to come uh brother jim jackson our chairman of deacons will be here as well if you need to pray with someone if you need to speak to someone um, they'll be here to receive you we'll all sing together Um, and we'll respond to God's word in that way. Let's pray as we do that. Lord, thank you for your word that speaks to us. Uh, Lord, that was written thousands of years ago, but yet still has life and meaning uh, for us who are living out this life, this gospel life. Uh, Lord, in a completely different context, in a completely different time. But we thank you for your eternal truth, uh, for your Holy Spirit that illuminates the word for us, Lord, I'm thankful that we have a church that we can be a part of and united with that believes in the gospel, that believes in these convictions about who you are, about what you've done, about what the Bible says and what it is. Lord, that we can be strengthened and built up each and every week when we gather together for this very fight. We can be strengthened and built up in our faith for this very courage, 
for this very assurance that we've heard about this morning. Lord, thank you for the gospel, for saving us, sinners who did not deserve it, who could never earn it, but you've given us the gift, you've given us life in Christ. We can never thank you enough. Lord, now as we respond, may your spirit continue to move as we glorify you and commit our lives to you again. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.